today, here today, what do I feel is possible for me? I think I'm going to feel with my whole body for as long as I can. I don't know how long that is, but I, I want the level of intensity of feeling to be sustained until the very end. I don't want to leave my body ever again. As someone who's disassociated, who's been, you know, paralyzed and numbed out by trauma, whatever happens next, even if it's painful, if it's heartbreak, if it's difficult, I want to feel with my whole organism because that's why I'm here is to be a kind of a sensory soft animal. Hey friends, welcome to Medicine Stories episode 105. This is Amber. It's been a while, but thanks for sticking around. As I always say, I can't imagine ever stopping making this podcast. Sometimes I need to slow down due to things which I have spoken about on recent episodes. I am very excited today to have you listen to the words of Sophie Strand. She is one of my favorite humans on the planet and has been my most requested guest for this podcast. Sophie and I talk chronic illness and trauma, the theater of medicine, and the communal dimension of healing that is so often lacking today, the aquatic nature of memory, and the entanglements of time. Among so much else, it's truly a wide and far-ranging conversation. Sophie is a writer slash compost heap. I took that directly from her Instagram bio. And if you need to know more about that, (laughs) subscribe to her Substack newsletter, Make Me Good Soil. The link is below in the show notes. There are a lot of links in the show notes for this episode. It is thick with resources. We touched on a lot of other people's work, a lot of books, etc. in the conversation. Sophie is a beautiful writer and the themes of death and disintegration, compost, soil are frequently found in her work. A few little bits of housekeeping. Have I ever used that word before? So many people use that word in the intro to their podcast. I don't think I ever have, but I need to tell you a couple things. One is that August 4th, (laughs) fingers crossed this episode comes out before that, is the last day to sign up for my forest bathing retreat in Costa Rica. You can find all the info at the link below in the show notes. And also episode 103, my guest and I talked a lot about it because she is coming with me on this retreat. It's going to be super chill and relaxing for everyone, we hope. Also, in our Mythic Medicinals online shop, maybe by the time you hear this, all of our herbal oils will be restocked, certainly most of them. We make them all by hand with herbs that we either grow in our garden organically or responsibly wildcraft. And so we have um, limited supplies. We don't order our ingredients online for our oils. Some of our elixir ingredients we do like um, ginger and licorice or just buy them at our co-op. But point is we sell out every spring or early summer and then we make brand new batches of oils and it's always a big joyous celebration when they are restocked because there are many people sitting at home, (laughs) refreshing their browser. 
you know, not throughout the day, but maybe throughout the weeks waiting for the restock to happen. So check it out there. The link will be in the show notes. Again, of course, the St. John's wort, mugwort, yarrow, violet, dandelion, rose. These are the, uh, and redwood, the ingredients that are in different combinations in our Mythic Medicinals herbal body oils, which is how this all began. I also want to let you know that I recorded an extra outro that you'll find at the end of this interview just to sort of clarify and expound upon some things that were said. It's hard when you make a podcast and you listen back and you're like, oh, that didn't make sense, or I didn't complete that thought, or wow, I sound like a terrible person when I said that. I need to, uh, you know, like give full context to to what I was thinking when I said that thing. So that's there. And finally, there is a Patreon offering as usual for this episode. Thank you so much, patrons. And as a reminder, they just added a seven-day free trial. So if you've always wanted to check it out or you're not even sure what Patreon is, you can see what I have up there, the many, 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 many posts and offerings from past guests at patreon.com slash medicine stories. This offering, it's a text offering, uh, Ecological Literacy, Building Boats from Breath. It's two beautifully written exercises from Sophie. These are like exercises that she does in her life and the way she lives her life. And you'll hear in this interview, I think when you're done, you'll, you will want to be more like Sophie. You will want to put some of her practices into play in your own life, especially when you hear the stories about some of her wild animal encounters. They're so incredible and so, you know, deeply human. I think the kind of encounters that most of our ancestors would have had, but we've become so disentangled from the wild world. So I know that these are practices that she that she does in her daily life to stay connected and in remembrance and in reciprocal reverence um, with the natural world outside her door. So you can check that out there. Again, lots in the show notes. The the first section of the resources, which if you don't know where to find show notes, because I get this question a lot, wherever you pushed play on this episode, just scroll down there. The first section is all the references and the things that Sophie and I talk about. And then beneath that, I I don't know what I titled it, but it's get closer. Yeah, I might need to change that. I don't know. But it's like all the ways to connect to me. And so the Costa Rica Forest Bathing Retreat, which happens in late September, by the way, of this year, 23 is there. Patreon is there. And our website where you can check out our medicines is there as well. All right. Thanks so much again for listening. I have two other interviews already recorded that I hope to get out quickly in the next, well, maybe not quickly, in a somewhat timely manner over the next couple months here. So stay tuned. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Amber. Here we finally are after, after many months of planning and switching dates, but after many years of knowing one another through the internet. And for me, even longer, learning from you for many, many years. Yeah, I was thinking you, I mean, this is kind of an intense thing to put on someone, but you are a pivotal part of my life, mm-hmm. <laughs> unbeknownst to you. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, thank you. You're like so many people. I just apparently speechless trying to verbalize like the depths to which you take my thinking, um, the like new synapses created by your essays, your posts, your podcast interviews. Um, it's really special and really beautiful. And I'm looking forward to getting to know you a little better. And I want to start. So since we were supposed to first speak months ago and then had to reschedule, I was rereading my notes for this podcast. And I have no idea what this first phrase means <laughs> anymore, but I have a feeling you will. Okay. Um, 16 baby possums. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 16 baby possums. I was raised in the shadow of Overlook Mountain in the Hudson Valley by parents who were kind of eco-animist pagan animal rehabilitators. And which meant that there were a lot of wild animals coming in and out of our house. And my my bedroom became the place where we rehabilitated 16 baby possums that needed to be fed with an eyedropper every half hour, which meant that it would take a half hour to feed them. And then you'd have to start again. And the funk, they I've never, I'm a person who's really affected by smell. I like, I think through smell. I have a lot of synesthesia where I pair different senses and like, you know, memory, taste, music, everything is paired with smell for me. And the funk of these possums, I have never smelled anything like it. It was so vital. It was awful, but boy, was it alive. Um, and it was and in it, your bedroom? In my bedroom. And it took about a year to leave. It was so intense. But yeah, 16 baby possums. That, those are, you know, part of my pantheon. Is that one litter? I think so. Yeah, I'm not sure. Actually, I think there were two different ages. What happens? So we we would very commonly take in rescues. There was this incredible, incredible, wild, like shamanic animal rehabilitator in the area when I was growing up. And she was always like giving us beings to take care of like tiny, like hummingbirds and chipmunks and, you know, like hawks with broken wings. And when mama possums get hit on the side of the road, oftentimes they still have their babies inside of them. Mm. And go in if you get there fast enough and take them out. And I think that's what had happened with these. Wow. Which is really intense. Yeah. Imagine being the person who sees that and decides to do that. Right. That's what I, I don't know if I, I I would just turn, turn my eyes, cover my eyes and turn around and run away. So I am extremely interested in your childhood and your parents as as a mother, whenever I, you know, encounter a really amazing adult, I'm just like, what did their parents do right? Um, How, what was their childhood like? How did this person turn out so incredibly magical? And then, you know, I know that your parents are authors and I I loved your father's book. What's it called? Waking up to the dark. I'll tell him. It'll mean a lot to him. Yeah, well, we've um, messaged a little bit on Instagram, but it just and and then a friend of mine recently was like, "Have you read her mother's book? You know, like her parents are incredible." And how do you see that? I'm really, really lucky. I also always want to say that I come from the ecotone between the worst violence and the luckiest upbringing. And so whatever weird recipe brought me into being also like includes the worst parts of human nature. And so I was born in New York City. Um, initially my parents were, my mom was teaching and working in publishing and my dad was running a Buddhist magazine, tricycle magazine, who's the editor. Mm -hmm. I was raised, I was born in squalor, 
complication, a place where kids are given away to nannies. You know, I was born in that, that world. And in a very short period of time, underwent pretty intense experiences. Thankfully, I had parents who were yearning to leave that world and made a leap, <laughs> made a leap of faith that I think for them ultimately was really difficult behind the scenes to keep afloat. But, you know, it has really paid off for their children, which is that my dad sold a book and they left immediately. They bought a house like the next day in Woodstock, like rundown house, but deep in the woods so that, you know, I could go outside and like wander for miles and only run into like black bears and foxes and no other people. And they adopted, you know, six cats. We had dogs, cats. We had a Chinese goose. We had a crippled wagra goose that we saved. <laughs> and yeah, they raised me in kind of a compost heap of like books, fantasy. We read aloud. They were also really interested in the history of religion and interfaith practice as paired with kind of environmentalism. So herbalists, rabbis, Buddhist monks, all at the dinner table. And like, I, I don't think it, it was, by, it was education by osmosis. It was just kind of a general atmosphere of everything being alive and every perspective, even if it was different than your own, being important to consider. So yeah, I was really, really lucky. I was also really, really unlucky. And I think we always are <laughs> the fusion of the two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've been, you've, sort of hinted at the unluckier parts in your essays lately. So writing bought your yeah. parents like the dream house in the woods. Yeah. And then promptly, <laughs> I mean, it was my poor parents came of age in a moment in time where publishing was really shifting, which is it used to be, you could get really good advances on books, advances that could support your family for a couple of years while you wrote the next book. And they had a couple of initial books that really made them feel like, Oh, it's sustainable to leave our well-paying jobs, be writers, go to the woods. And then the publishing industry collapsed and changed. And it became impossible to get big advances. And they had to make do in lots of really interesting ways that showed me close up how hard it is to be an artist. And that was difficult for them. And for us as a family, we were really poor. <laughs> but it also showed me that, you know, making art means making a lot of compromises and doing a lot of side jobs. It means really having a lot of balls in the air. Right. Right. I was thinking about that yesterday. Like, do I want to focus on writing like the book of my heart or do I want money? <laughs> it's so hard. And I also, we're always impinged by these kind of like moral universes that we don't choose to enter into, but then we're there. We're like, Oh, I don't want money, mm -hmm. <laughs> but you do. I do. We want to be able to live. Yeah. So, and you have a brother, is that right? I do. He's younger than me. He is a farmer. He's really interested in permaculture. Oh, yeah. We were, and I was also raised alongside my cousins who are half Israeli and kind of inside, like adjacent to their very intense Jewish experience. So, so when I was five years old, I said to my mom, I was like, are we Jewish? Like, what's going on here? And she's like, not really. <laughs> but yeah, I had a lot of kids around me growing up. I know you have a sister. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's two years younger. And then we had girl cousins our ages, um, our dad's brother's daughters. So we were like parallel mirrored families and grew up together. It was really sweet. No, it's really, it, yeah, I feel lucky that I had a peopled childhood. And when I say peopled, I mean people by trees, by animals, by elders, by grandparents who lived with us and died with us. Like, you know, I was, my, my childhood was peopled with death, close up death. And I'm, I think that's also something I'm really 
really glad I got to experience that my parents didn't try and shield me from death. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure some of your most powerful writings and sharings. And the the name of your newsletter is Make Me Good Soil. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know for some people, that's kind of like antithetical to their whole perspective. But yeah. Yeah. I would it, you understand. Isn't that, I just find it so bizarre and so sad. It's not like an individual's failing. It's It's the culture. But when, when people think it's morbid to talk about death, it's like, well, yeah, <laughs> it is. But like, that's, it's it just, or, or when someone knows someone who died for the first time and they're like, I can't believe someone I know died. I'm like, God, this is a major cultural failing that this feels odd or wrong. I know. And it's because we're not living in tight knit villages where the ancestors are there, even the ones we've never met, where you know, if someone else dies in an extended family, you're part of that network, you know, we're so shielded from not only the deaths of people in our families, but the everyday deaths around us, the deaths that go into our food. I mean, it's also, I really loved your um, work about veganism and vegetarianism and, and, and kind of working with that because, you know, everything, there's no exiting the moral complexity of life. Everything we eat dies to make us alive that we are only self through other through death death is what builds other bodies and we can't exit that equation even if we try and like you know purify our life and control it yeah yeah i i love this elder i guess you could call her spiritual teacher in the uk and i've been following her work for a long time and then i found out she's vegetarian and i swear it just <laughs> I was like, she thinks she's above the cycle of life. Like she thinks she's separate from nature. It's I don't it really shifted how I view her. And I'm I mean, I'm like, you know, I feel kind of bad and I'm like, am I just being a judgmental bitch? But I'm like, it just she just seems her understanding of life seems different to me now. And I don't hold her on the same pedestal that I did. Well, it's interesting for me. So something I've been thinking about a lot is I think that. Diets that are choice-based are the privilege of the able-bodied. Mm-hmm. And that when you're sick, you don't get that choice. You're going to eat what works for you. And every diet is contextual. What works for one person's organism is not going to work for another person's organism. And I think as someone who's been sick for a long time, this blanket assumption that one diet is going to work for everyone is always crazy to me. I want to be like, you know, one plant grows in the tropics. It's not going to grow here. So, yeah, I mean... I guess I'm trying to have kind of like a openness and ambiguity for what works for other people. But when it becomes a moral stance, that's when I begin to feel a little allergic to it. I want to say like, you cannot exit, like, let's trace your avocado. Like, (laughs) let's trace the Benadryl you just took. I mean, one of the things I do with people oftentimes is trying to shift from an object ontology to a relational ontology, which is instead of trying to say like, these are the pure foods and the impure foods, let's look at everything that you keeps you alive and the complex ancient network of beings that came into play to bring it into your body. And the minute you start to actually trace those meandering reticulated lineages, it's really hard to stay pure. Impossible. (laughs) Yeah. So when, when did you first start having symptoms and like, get your diagnosis. And what what has the evolution of your illness been? Interesting you're asking me that. I so right now I'm actually 
revising and putting in the memoir to this book I'm writing about chronic illness and complicating the narrative arc of like sick diagnosis, healing, like trying to unweave that um, Mm -hmm. a little bit or spiral it. So I I do, I'll tell a story, but I also want to like untell it as I'm telling it, which is (laughs) when I was, I I had a weird, I had weird, a weird physicality growing up. But it, it was more like Sophie's super flexible. She can do weird things physically. She can like win contests, but it never rendered me ill or unable to do anything. But at the age of 16, I was visiting family in Jerusalem and overnight, it's such a weird thing. It's like really like, it was not like a descent. It was like overnight, I went to sleep well, woke up and was basically an organ failure. It was just like completely dying. And it took... Two years, it was during high school, I was 16 years old, in and out of the hospital. I like didn't go to the rest of the high school. I just did it from a hospital bed where people like my parents had a caring bridge set up for me, like basically like telling people how I was dying. It was pretty intense. And, you know, I've been doing a lot of research. Women, it takes them like 10 years longer to get diagnoses than men. And if you've ever received any psychological diagnosis, diagnoses for anything, you add another five years on. So there are all of these different women are like 80% more likely to die of all of these different conditions because they don't get diagnosed in time. They don't get taken seriously. So I was initially, you know, one unfortunate thing was I got sick right at the boom of chronic Lyme becoming really popular. And I think we should always be a little sensitive about popular diagnoses. They can be very real. And I think chronic Lyme is very real. But when something becomes trendy, it oftentimes becomes an umbrella diagnosis for other things. And so instead of these male doctors being like, this is a very odd case, we need to move really slowly and sensitively. And even though I had complete negative Western blots, they put me into like experimental Lyme treatments for two years that permanently wrecked my body. And it took another five years of increasingly severe anaphylaxic anaphylaxis, cardiac issues, gastroparesis, seizures, all sorts of different things to finally get a diagnosis at the age of 21 of Ehlers-Danlos with mast cell disease, autoimmunity, postural orthostatic tachycardia. So it took like how many years from 2010 to 2017, 16, six years to get a diagnosis. And then, of course, the diagnosis is very, the thing about the word diagnosis that I think is interesting is it really is representative of our entire Europatriarchal perspective. Diagnosis means knowledge that you get from dividing it off from other things to divide so that you get the knowledge. I always think that knowledge for me is never about dividing, slicing apart, you know, breaking things down to particulars. It's always about connecting, fusing, <laughs> um, joining hands. And so diagnosis for me is such a capture. It's a way of closing you off, dividing you off, pinning you. And yeah, so I, I have a diagnosis, but I'm also open to that diagnosis, melting, shifting, changing. Mm-hmm. I have had so many people ask me to do an episode on chronic illness. And, you know, I read that book recently, The Ladies. I, yeah, on my list of things I have to read. Yes, especially as you're now writing your memoir, The Ladies Handbook for Her Chronic Illness by Sarah Ramey. And it's gotten me thinking so much more about all this, how 
was it one in two? It's one in two adults have a chronic illness. So something I was really, really, really interested in this book is this idea of the exposome. Oh, me too. It's all about the exposome. Yes. So this is everything that you've been exposed to, all the inputs that have happened to your body, to your mind, heart, traumas, antibiotics. pressures, yeah. (laughs) Flight to Jerusalem for you? I mean, do you think that the travel? I hesitate. Trauma. I mean, the one interesting thing for me, I mean, I had this big aha moment when I read The Body Keeps the Score. And I, I now have much more complicated feelings about that book. When I first read it, I was like, oh my God, yeah. I had severe abuse as a child and my entire nervous system was glitched out. I was stressed out my entire childhood. Of course, eventually my system was like, too much. Yeah. I mean, I think I think trauma is oftentimes the exposome in so many different ways. Absolutely. Um, and in her book, she talks about, you know, the ACE score. Yeah. Uh, childhood events. It's like, it, there's a clear correlation. I forget the exact numbers, but if your ACE score is above four, you're this much more likely to have chronic illness. If your ACE score is yeah. above eight, you're this much more likely. And especially- and community. I mean, for me, the really interesting thing is like women who've experienced abuse are so much more likely to get lupus. <laughs> like it's just, you know, if you've experienced violent abuse, your likelihood to get an autoimmune illness is very high. <laughs> Yeah, the lineages of these harms, the way they fractal through our lives, um, it's 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 hard to grok. What are your issues? I'm just curious now with The Body Keeps the Score. Or how do you see it differently than you did once? I am really interested in the idea of healthism. And it goes back to the exposome, which is the idea of an individual being personally, financially, practically, energetically responsible for their own healing. And also healing as being some kind of moral adventure, something that you have to prove that we have to self-optimize. We have to be constantly bettering ourselves. And I think that oftentimes people are traumatized, have PTSD because of complex entangled systems of oppression that are, are impossible for one individual to interrupt. And so a lot of the modalities he's suggesting, the book is very traumatic itself. A criticism it's of a lot of psychologists is that the, the book itself freaks you out. It Which does. was my yeah. Like I went into flashbacks. Like I had been like not telling anyone about this in my life. I've been very repressed. So in a certain way, I'm thankful that it lanced a boil. It lanced a boil in a very messy way, and then it gives you a couple of pop, very expensive boutique types of therapy that are hard to find and actually not as effective as he pretends they are, especially for people who have had abuse that is over a long period of time and complicated that he's actually giving advice for people with like one violent episode (laughs) that you can go in with like a kind of tailored response. And and so for me, it gave me a sense of optimism. And then I spent thousands of my own dollars trying to fix myself. And let me tell you those, that money would have been better spent on body work, plants, (laughs) you know, good food, and I felt like a failure for not healing fast enough, for not, for doing it badly. So I, I, I think that book could have been more, I love the book Inflamed by Rupa Maria and Raj Patel. Do you know it? Mm-hmm. Amber, you would love it. It's all about the exposome. It's by these two doctors, well, a journalist and a doctor who are just talking about the fact that, you know, how do we, we, we cure a fish and then throw it back into a poisoned ocean? Like, how does this make any sense? 
How can healing be sustained in this culture, in this atmosphere of microplastics and glyphosate and racism and ecocide and anthropocentrism? I mean, it's hard. Yeah, I, I think the book is useful. It's useful at waking people up who don't understand this. And I never want to throw anything out. But I do find that it's a traumatic book and it should be given with a warning label. And uh, and people should also be told that, like, don't spend all your money on all of these therapies immediately. Be, you know, be quiet and tender with yourself and, and realize that, you know, it's not your fault and it's not your personal responsibility to spend all your money trying to fix yourself. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that other people realized how traumatic reading that book was, although of course they would. But yeah, I've had to stop it multiple times. I'm like, you just embedded like the scariest image in my mind. And I still hold on to these images from that book that, yeah, that's actually surprising to me that there's not already a (laughs) massive trigger warning on the cover of that book. I listened to a great roundtable by a bunch of therapists who were talking about that experience of of reading it themselves and being like, this is traumatic. Mm -hmm. It was helpful. Yeah. Okay. So you say that you're open, that you sort of maybe it sounds like have fluid boundaries around the diagnosis. I I think this is an interesting conversation. It's come up so many times. So clearly having a diagnosis for many people is one of the best things that's ever happened to them, especially complicated, mysterious, chronic illness. Now there's a word. Now I can reach out with my, to my community and learn more about it. And then there's also this aspect where a diagnosis can be like a hex where you're like, well, this, okay, I've got this now. So this is the box I'm in and there's no possibility or forward motion. And obviously it's going to be different for every single this. So this also is a point I really want to make right now is that Chronic illness is extremely multifactorial. There's not one event in your exposome. <laughs> the things you've multi-causal, been multi-causal, yeah, multi-causal. Then genetic aspects of it as well, and it's different for everyone, and the severity is different for everyone too. So there's just like not. It's just hard to make any sort of blanket statement. But for you, yeah, what possibilities do you see? What do you what do you envision as the most likely path? for you going forward? That's a really beautiful invitation for today because I'm really trying to imagine a wider horizon for myself. So first I want to acknowledge that when you don't have a diagnosis and you're getting sicker and sicker, a diagnosis can suddenly be an opening in the forest where you can, you suddenly there are cures, there are medicines, there are modalities, there's a way of understanding. You can feel seen. You don't feel gaslit anymore, especially for women with complicated pain disorders (laughs) who've been made to feel crazy for a long time. A diagnosis can be liberatory. I think when a diagnosis comes with a prognosis, it can be complicated. And I'm really interested in the, do you know about nocebos? Hmm. Really interested about in the nocebo effect, which is even more powerful than the placebo effect. Which is, you tell someone they're going to have a bad side effect or side effect to a drug, they're more likely to have it, even if it's a fake side effect. <laughs> you know, and if you tell someone they're likely to live six months, they're more likely to just live six months. So, I'm very interested in the theater of medicine, and that, in fact we really foregone that element. And it's perhaps immunologically, the most important part of healing is the theater of it, the performance, the laying of hands, the eye contact, you know, 
I'm really interested in miracle workers. I studied Second Temple period Palestine and Jewish healers as a, you know, a rhizomatic continuity that leads to Jesus. Um, you know, the spitting in the eyes, the laying of hands, the, you know, I, those healings really worked because people were part of a belief sphere that allowed for it, that activated their immune systems. Your immune systems are really, really powerful, but they require theater. <laughs> they require storytelling and mirror neuroning and people being part of this kind of concatenated material experience. And that can be positive. But when it's unintentional within our medical sterilized medical experience, it can have the opposite effect, which is creating negative outcomes. You go into a doctor's office and they say, your condition means you'll probably die by this age. And these are the things that will go wrong. These are the surgeries you will need. And these are the things you should start taking. And all of a sudden, you've been given one story to live. You've not been given 10. You've been given one. So you're more likely to live into that story. And so for me, the terrifying thing with my particular diagnosis was it did not have a cure. It had doctors who loved to give me recitations of the things that were wrong with me and how much worse they were going to get. And I thought to myself at a certain point, when I was going to all these doctors, I was getting worse really, really quickly. And I thought, you want to know what? I think if I take a break from hearing these spells, <laughs> these hexes, I might not get worse as fast. And I was correct. I mean, there's no purity to that approach. I need, I'm right now, I'm actually working with geneticists to see if there's something metabolically wrong with me that might explain why things are so complicated. So here I am looking for another diagnosis, but I do think that we have to be careful about the nocebo effect and how we can live stories that other people give us and preclude, you know, spontaneous remission and healing and healing modalities that are perhaps outside of our epistemological approach. You know, I'll take a medicine, I'll take Reiki healing, I'll take anything. When you're really sick, you stop being such a snob. <laughs> you start being more curious and humble about what actually works. Today, here today, what do I feel is possible for me? I think I'm going to feel with my whole body for as long as I can. I don't know how long that is, but I, I want the level of intensity of feeling to be sustained until the very end. I don't want to leave my body ever again. As someone who's disassociated, who's been, you know, paralyzed and numbed out by trauma, whatever happens next, even if it's painful, if it's heartbreak, if it's difficult, I want to feel with my whole organism because that's why I'm here is to be a kind of a sensory soft animal. Yeah. That's so interesting. The, um, the theater of healing and it just must be such a major reason why everyone's so sick today right? because the fucking medical system and the hospitals and the doctors and it's a, the horror. it's a horror movie you put people in these like spaceships with no windows with recycled dry air with other people screaming in other rooms i mean <laughs> food the sense the chemical sense everything Oh, we just visited my father who's dying and he's in a home and the smell in that place was killing me. And someone gave my my six-year-old daughter a little stuffed animal dog. And for like a day, I was like, the hell is that smell in my home? This is not, and then I was like, oh, it's this little freaking dog. And I had to like wrestle her to get her to let us wash it. But I'm like, this is, 
crazy. Like this just how are we getting healing so wrong? So wrong. So wrong. I mean, oh <laughs> I mean, I do actually want to do an aside here and really say that you are one of the people that helped me make this switch. And I so I got this diagnosis. I had been inside of academia really, really intensely. I'd become kind of sterilized and my whole worldview had been pretty narrowed by that. And I was going to go to grad school, but then I got really sick. And I put off going to grad school and started ghostwriting children's books instead to pay my way and moved deep into the mountains with my partner. And I was really, really, really sick one day. And I was like, I just need to learn about plants more. Plants will help me. And I don't know how I found your podcast, but I think I listened to like 20 episodes in a day. And really, like I went to, there was like a little gym nearby. I went to it. I just like maniacally walked on the the, um, Stairmaster and listened to you and was like, there are other ways to do this. There are other ways to be. Yeah. It's really interesting. Like even being raised with parents who were really animistic and, you know, were always giving me herbs. We were growing around food. Even with them, I still got swallowed by the culture and I had to choose to exit. And it was hard, but you were part of it. So I just want to note that. Thank you. Oh, I'm curious. So I'm working with my episode 100 guest, Nisia Nelson, to just kind of reclaim my health. I've shared a few times on Instagram. I I truly feel like I was going over the cliff into some illness or autoimmune issue. I could just like feel it in my body. And I, I think I chose to work with her at the last possible moment and like pulled myself back. Um, and you work with hormones and minerals, right? I remember that yes. episode. Yeah. yeah. And just getting my mineral, my hair tissue mineral analysis, it was like, oh my God. But one thing I mentioned her, so we've, without using this word, been really yeah. going back into my exposome, you know, and like I filled out a form when we started working together, sort of an intake. And then as we've been chatting ever since then, she's like, you didn't mention that on your form. You didn't mention that on your form. And I'm like, oh, I just, you know, like, it's just, I'm just a, person in the modern world, of course, I got the Depo Prevera shot and had a bad, you know, just things like that. So, but one thing I remember saying to her is, well, it all really got bad in college. And I feel like academia was an extremely hostile environment for me. And she's like, so many women I talked to. I was going to say it's not made for women's bodies. No, no, exactly. Women's bodies. And that's actually what I'm writing about right now is just I was so good. The issue is I was so good at academia and academia wanted to kill me. Yeah. I wanted to feed myself to it. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it will kill you. Yes. I want to, you know, be as skinny as possible, <laughs> as sick as possible. Yeah. So it's really trying to fit into a man's world and just, it's like a constant proving. I just felt, I almost quit too. Like my last quarter uh, UC Davis, I called my mom and I was like, I can't do this is it's heartless. It's soulless. This institution yeah. does not give a fuck about me. I don't want to be here anymore. What am I doing? What am I doing with a religious studies degree? You know, and she just like begged me to finish it out. So I did. But while I was in it, I was like, there's something really wrong here. I know it's, you know, it's so tricky for women because we do want the knowledge that's been kept from us. But then we enter into these institutions to get it, and they immediately clamp their jaws onto us and eat us. One of the real turning points for me was with a lot of my mentors who are women who wanted me to follow in their footsteps. I looked at their lives, and I said, 
happy. <laughs> you know, I, I think for me in my life, I've looked for the women, the older women who seem happy, who seem in their bodies, like really physically present. And when I say happy, when I say happy, it's not like an intellectual thing. It's like a bodily thing. Like you, you like, like they have a, a real presence and confidence and self-esteem. And I've looked like, what brought you to that point? How did you get there? Hardly ever academia. <laughs> so I'm seeing this theme in what we're talking about between like sterility and yeah. soil. Right? Sterility and what? Soil. Yeah. Um, like, and I think of sterility as a, a lack of communication between parts um, and soil, mycelium, all these things that you talk and write about so much is extreme communication between parts. And like, that's, that's where the healing is. It is. It's, I, I always say self is not in here. It's here. It's the interface that this whole idea of the atomized self, it's what, it's what's deranged healing. It's what's deranged community it's what's deranged families we are only self through other through the places where we are changed by other people and where we help them and they help us i mean i think that's why here's something that i've been really trying to work with which is okay so i think that there's more i think that healing isn't about being well it's about the amount of joy i feel in my body mm-hmm. so I think I will feel healed. <laughs> I think I'm healing because I'm feeling a lot of joy in my body. But I also know that I may have physical issues that require help my whole life. And I was thinking about how people who have physical illness have this radical understanding that they need other people. And that there are people who are well who don't have to acknowledge that. And for people who are unwell, we can gift that to other people by saying like, no, it's actually kind of sexy and amazing to be really interdependent, to need your roots tied. You know, think about ghost pipe, monotropa uniflora, the plant that doesn't make its own food and depends completely on a fungal symbiont. I think that sometimes I'm like that, which is, you know, sometimes I need a lot of help from the soil. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I know that's why my father's dying at 73 is because he cut himself off from, from other people for so long, like just went through the motions of having a wife and daughters and, you know, people he managed at work. Um, But I remember it hit me so, so strongly about 10 years ago after his first hospitalization due to his alcoholism, he was in his dad's bed, my grandpa's bed who had just passed away. My sister and I were laying next to him and he just like, had his hands on our knees and it was so sweet. We were all kind of like cuddly. And I was like, we've never done this before. It's like, he's so lonely. He's so lonely. And, and he chose to just keep drinking alone. And now he's dying of a cancer that's five times more common in alcoholics. There's alcoholism in my family too. It's, yeah. I think loneliness is the big epidemic right now. People who just don't. But it's also we cut ourselves off from our families and from other people. But we also cut ourselves off from the birds, from the smells, from the food, from the weeds outside our house. Like life is bumptious and talking. Every everywhere being is talking. And we've we've somehow cut those vocal cords so we don't hear all the beings that want our attention all the time. Like I had this experience during quarantine where I, my long-term partnership broke up right before I was living alone. 
I had been through some very intense health things. So I kind of like for the first six months, I was like, I have to be really careful. <laughs> um, I don't know like what this thing is. I think I just have to like be careful. So I was very alone and I was not alone, but it was because of this softening of this sense, a softening of my boundaries where like, I've never had more animals approach me. I've never had more plant encounters or dreams about weather systems and mountains. And I also, so I, I also think that this loneliness is not just, you know, about human to human contact, it's interspecies. Yeah, absolutely. What What's your phrase for that? Um, the cartography of encounters. Yeah. 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 You've just, you've had some, I mean, people are going to have to like, go deep into your substack, but some really profound animal encounters. Yeah. I mean, I hesitate to make myself special. Um, I think I'm outside a lot. So like I, I spend, if you spend enough time outside, you'll have these encounters. And if you also, the big thing I've been talking about in classes I've been teaching is you have to realize that your whole body is speaking, that you can be quiet, but if you're wearing synthetic perfume if you're eating food that isn't grown in the area, if you're angry, you're exuding pheromones and smells, you're walking in a different way. Like are we leak communication all the time and that communication is received and, and responded to by the beings around us. And so sometimes I tell people like, just think about your smell when you're entering into a place. Like, can we be more sensitive about the way our body communicates with other beings? So I think that I have been over the past couple of years, my whole life, been thinking about how I enter into spaces in such a way that other beings might want to dialogue with me. Because if we're really loud and angry and stinky, and when I say stinky, I mean like we smell like, you know, our synthetic CVS, you know, <laughs> air freshener, maybe, maybe a bear is not going to approach us. But like, you know, if we enter with care and courtship and, and humility, we might have a, a very life-changing encounter. Mm -hmm. Well, you also have this practice where when you wake in the morning, you yeah. name in your mind yeah. every animal. And is it plant as well? Like, I mean, I've Fungi, tried it. Yeah. Ancestral being, yes. uh, landforms. It takes so long my whole it. run at yes. this point. Yes. It's long. So you're, you're like in this reciprocal relationship of honoring and recognizing as well, because I mean, your, your animal encounter stories actually are extremely special and I've, I've had plenty too, but none at that level. And I'm really interested in like, in these timelines where, where you're like, you feel like you've been prepared for that encounter beforehand. That's what it feels like in my life, which is like, I've been funneled towards them. Yeah. And like, like nothing, I oftentimes say, say to friends, like, I'll never be late for one of these encounters. I'll be late for everything else, but everything in my life will conspire to make it happen. <laughs> like relationships will end. I will be fired from jobs. Like my car will break. So I'm there at that moment with that bald eagle, you know? Yeah. And it's, I don't know, there's, I mean, I just feel like that's how it would be for all of us if we were living, I don't know, ancestrally or however, yeah, whatever is not how we're living now. But will you tell the woodchuck story? Because that yeah. blew my mind. I just actually had an encounter with a mama woodchuck and her puppies yeah. yesterday. So I and I've never seen them so small. It was very special. Yeah, at the start of quarantine, 
I have these big animal, sustained animal experiences where like I'll learn from an animal through encounters over a period of time. You know, hawks, I've, I've, I've worked with deer. I worked with deer for two years and then I finally touched one. It let me touch it. That was like a long experience. I bowed to every deer I saw, even if there were a lot of people around for two years. I would go down to the ground. So I looked crazy. And that's, for people who don't have deer around them, they're extremely skittish animals. Like yeah, that's, they are. that's major. But for the woodchucks at the start of quarantine, I, I was like heartbroken, had been through a miscarriage, end of a relationship, was really like, I need something sexy. I need like a coyote, a fox, something to come in. And yet it was not that. It was woodchucks, groundhogs. I would go up to my sit spot and they would approach me and like look at me and like leave things in front of me and like make little squeak noises. And eventually I had to say, this is a real thing. It's the woodchucks. And I, I was really oriented towards them and I was kind of humorous. Like, and it would happen, like eventually I started to see friends for walks outside and they woodchucks would run at me. So other people were like experiencing the woodchuck energy around me. And then one day, I think two or three months into this experience, I was driving home from a walk on a highway when there was like a hailstorm, like intense weather. And then up against the dividing rail, was this rain-soaked woodchuck. And I didn't think because I'd been prepared for the moment to not think. (laughs) And I just threw my car into park, jumped out of the car, put out my hands. And this is the unusual experience because animals don't do this. It jumped into my hands. And it felt like an electric loaf of bread. Like it was such an intense experience. It smelled so intense. It was wild. And I ran across the highway through like speeding traffic and put it into the into the bushes and it ran off. Of course, a lady was screaming to me and she's like, it's fine, it's fine. Like, <laughs> but yeah, the thing about the encounter was it was a dumb thing to do. It was dangerous. And if I had thought about it any longer, I wouldn't have done it. But I had been prepared for that moment. And afterwards, I thought, what if that was it? What if that was the point of my entire life? Like was was me intervening in that woodchuck's life? What if the woodchuck is the main character and I'm like Hodor in Game of Thrones? Like I don't, you know, that reference will like mean something to like a very small number of people. But like my one purpose has been to ferry this woodchuck across the highway. Yeah, it was intense. That woodchuck is being interviewed on a podcast right now. I mean, man. And then, I mean, again, like this idea of of timelines and interweaving consciousnesses and how, yeah, there are these moments that it seems like everything has been leading towards. Yeah, I I feel that in my own life. I mean, I don't, I hesitate to say that that logic is the same for everyone. I'm very interested in time loops. Do you know Eric Wargo's work? Oh, I think he would love it. He he, He wrote a book about precognitive dreams. And just how common they are and why that might be and what they are. And I, I think that time flows both ways. Perhaps it's a little bit more wobbly than we think it is. So I think sometimes time, our future selves or future experiences reflux into our present to pull us forward a little bit. And sometimes that can show up as encounters or synchronicities. Yeah, I'll notice that I'll enter seasons of my life where something strange will start to happen. Like for ex- example, there was a period where I started to Feathers started to fall out of the sky from birds that I would catch. And 
it was not for forever. It was for a very short period of time, but it was like teaching me about a different type of temporality, about patience, about like not speeding up to get the feather, about just trusting the footstep, the bipedal rhythm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, so I was afraid my entire childhood that my mom would die in a car accident driving home from school. She did. She did when I was 34. And then my grandmother died a couple months ago. We, we canceled our podcast interview around that time. And um, she died exactly the way I had envisioned her dying, which was in her home, in her bed with me and my sister touching her. And then my sister, and I didn't really think too much about those things, but then my sister mentioned them to me and she was like, well, do you remember like a year ago you said dad was going to get cancer? And I was like, no. She was like, you did. And he did, you know? And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. That is like my two parents and my one grandmother who lived the longest. I don't know. It's like a, a foreseen or just just like a knowing of how my ancestors were going to leave leave the earth in some way. And I don't think it's going to like happen for anyone else in my family or or anyone else. But I've just, I've been kind of tripping on it ever since my sister pointed that out to me a couple of days ago. I think this, you know, my mom works a lot with trying to help people reclaim the mundanity of this experience that we get, we know in ways that are so much wider than the culture allows for, that we are having psychic, psychic experiences, animistic dialogues. And in fact, our very senses are just more attuned to pattern recognition than we allow for, that just our very senses are kind of supernatural in and of themselves. And I think people are having precognitive dreams, all sorts of experiences that then they they gate out or they gaslight themselves all the time. How can we like stop gaslighting these experiences and give them space and honor them? Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember in The Artist's Way, you know, that book by Julia Cameron, yeah. she writes something like, people actually are more afraid that God exists than <laughs> God doesn't exist. And it's, you know, it's, she's writing about like synchronicity and how often actually these things happen and things happen that are for us. And uh, again, working with Nisia, she's like, I can't even tell you once women really start like doing this work and, and healing themselves, how often something just happens. It's like, it's an incredible coincidence and it's just for them at that moment. Even if it's something massive, like for me, a giant snowstorm that shut down my entire county for two weeks, that was like perfectly what I needed to really face what has happened to me over the last seven years and just how sick I was getting. I mean, I think coincidences are whatever they are. I think that when we acknowledge them, because I think people can, they can happen and we can actively not acknowledge them. But when we acknowledge them, they can bring us into our ecological niche. They can bring us where we fit best, like the bee finding its way into the fall, the flower and incidentally pollinating other beings on the way. If we follow the synchronicities in our life in a playful way and honor them and don't discount them, they kind of show us where to go. At least that's been my experience in my life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and now that's, you know, it is hard to universalize yeah. anything really, but <laughs> I just, I just truly believe that when you follow, and I mean, this has been my mission with this podcast since the beginning, like follow the golden threads that call to you, the dreams, the synchronicities, it is a guiding, a guiding light home. Yeah. And it, it doesn't even have to be synchronicity. It's what you really love. 
Yes. Like call them what you love and it's going to be different for each person. But, you know, I, I think that when you are called to love something, it's because it loves you back. And I think, oh, gosh, the I'm so annoyed by the injunction against anthropomorphizing other beings and other things because it's what every other culture has done is a way of like creating care. Like the rocks love me back. Like, of course they do. The mountains love me back. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I always, always love this roomy quote. Let yourself be silently drawn by the strange pool of what you really love. It will not lead you astray. That's beautiful. Yeah. Okay, I want to, I keep going back in my mind to this Jesus era theatrical healing, um, yeah. which is so interesting to think that, so it sounds to me like what you're saying is that, um, at least partially, there was already a a culture of that, that Jesus wasn't this like weirdo who was like, hey, I'm going to heal everyone. No, he was actually, I love that people don't know this, but he was not atypical for the time period the the thing that made him different than other healers or revolutionaries was actually his teaching model it but it, his healing was like people were constantly raising people from the dead and healing people it was just part of the culture yeah so what i'm thinking about that as well is that it's being witnessed it's like someone looking you in the eye spitting you in the eye apparently spitting you in the eye does that make sense in the eye, you would say apatha be opened in aramaic and you would spit in their eyes or their face yeah but it's just being deeply witnessed and like cared about enough for someone else in your community. You're probably actually being witnessed by multiple other people as well to want to heal you, to want to see you healed. It's a, and that's also the big thing. I really love the book dancing in the streets by Barbara Ehrenreich. I have read that one. Yes. The the dancing plague. Yeah. Also it's about like healing is always communal. It's about a community that collective belief that you could be healed. That people are there, they believe it's possible, you believe it's possible, all of that is together, you're all dancing, you're all saying the prayers, you're all laying hands, when you put a lot of bodies together, something bigger can happen. Right, so this is about, like, at different points, right, during the Middle Ages in Europe, yeah. they would just be dancing crazes. Yeah. And I and I believe it's been when, a- when, when, when down, dancing was outlawed. That's when you see the very concept of depression begin. Wow. <laughs> that when you outlaw these collective festive experiences where people are healing these cultural traumas, like after the Black Plague, people needed to dance a lot to move that through their organism. But of course, the church started to crack down on same stays and these kinds of festive experiences that were seen as perhaps disrupting hierarchy. And when you do that, you see the rise in complaints of melancholy <laughs> and depression. And that suddenly is a new diagnosis. Yeah. And yeah. so people just on their own started just fucking going outside and dance. And someone else was like, shit, I want to dance. And it b- became these <laughs> frenzied crazes. I'm thinking, I just listened to um, Joshua Shree. That's mm-hmm. right, Shree. Um, Shri. Shri. I mean, your appearance on his podcast, everything, The Emerald is the name of the podcast. Yeah. It's just one of the best. One Josh of the very best of all time, forever. And that he often quotes you too on subsequent um, episodes. But I just listened to the one about like embodiment. Yeah. It's the, what's the title? But it's about like psychic dismemberment as a part of embodiment, these sort of yeah. ancient universal shamanic. Yeah dismemberment and anyway he's just you know giving this scene of of all the people all the people in the clan around the fire dancing ecstatic and how how those situations 
move energy in a community. Like, you know, you, you might heal rifts without even having to fucking talk about it or go to therapy or, you know, approach the elder to counsel. Um, and I was, I was just feeling in my heart so deeply how we are missing those group ecstatic experiences. That's what, where the healing is. It's not in this patient to doctor, patient to therapist dynamic. It's in these communal moments where, you know, I oftentimes think that there are psychic experiences that are not in us, they're territories we're inhabiting. And the only way to move that weather is with a lot of people all together. Right. I'm thinking about the word ecstasy right now, ek outside and stasis standing. So ecstasy is standing outside yourself and this healing paradigm that we're in today is so individual and literally ecstasy is going outside of yourself. And stasis is what we're doing. (laughs) Yeah. Those sterile, gross hospital rooms. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, we could change it all. We could fucking change it all. Humans have the creativity, the brain power, the resources at our disposal. If we, you know, so choose. It's so, I know so many people feel this way, like powerless to change what we know could really fucking easily and quickly be changed if enough people's minds changed. You know, I've been thinking a lot recently about the Ursula K. Le Guin short story, The Ones That Walk Away from Omelas. Do you know that short story? It's great. It's about a utopic city where everybody in the city, it's perfect, city's perfect, knows that there's one child in the middle of the city being abused and tortured. And that whole city is perfect because of that one child. And if to intervene with it would destroy the city. Mm. And it's about how few people actually choose to walk away from Omelas, the city, <laughs> and what it means to walk away And for me, that story has really become a kind of metaphor for the fact that we're all addicts. We're all drunk on this culture. Even when we say we're sober, it's the moment when we're drunkest. Like, what? where am I addicted to this culture? Like, my phone, my computer. What would it really take to walk away from Omelas? And so that's what I've been thinking about in my own life is like, I'm in Omelas right now. (laughs) Um, The child is the earth itself, is all of the animals and the beings that are going into my extractive lifestyle. Even though I've tried to make it much less of a load, it's still part of Omelas. And I think about what what does it take to walk away? I don't know. I'm not sure. For one, you can't do it alone. It's oh, you can't. It's like the healing. Like you walk away and you die. You know, because then oh, you're alone yeah. in the woods. Yeah. <sighs> heavy, heavy stuff. Just no answer. You know, there's no answer, and I'm becoming so comfortable sitting in that place of mystery. And I think, like so many people, when I was younger, I was like, I'm going to change the world. You know, like the the force of my will alone will. <laughs> create a small ripple that becomes a bigger ripple. And of course, everyone's going to see that this is the better way to live. And so we're going to do it. And I'm not so sure about that anymore. No, I can't. I can't see it all. I'm an ant on a on a giant earth. And I, yeah, I think we need to develop a higher capacity for ambiguity and, and unknowns. Yeah. And, accelerate into the solution always so I, I i enjoy just being here with you and that i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah it's honest it is and it also it leaves space for a better option something in my own life that has really been the key theme of the past couple of years which is 
thank God I didn't live the story I was offering for myself. Mm-hmm. Like, thank God something else outside of me interrupted. Mm-hmm. And I think that when we are constantly creating a new kind of activism, a new approach, a new solution, we're never leaving the empty space that allows for a better story to interrupt. Mm. Okay, I want to I want to close on on the memoir you're writing. I'm so excited about this and I love I loved your newsletter about it and um the sort of subheading of the newsletter was memoir is aquatic. Yeah. And just this I mean I'm like I love I love a reading memoir. I've also been slowly working on one. Um, and I'm so fascinated by uh, what memory is. So you wrote in that essay, memoir comes from the French for memory. That faculty we often assume is an accurate record, unchangeable once it has been tattooed in the past. But as someone who has effectively repressed and edited memories to keep herself safe, as someone who realized her happy childhood she gushed about for years was highly fictionalized, I've been thinking about how memory is a water that changes shape surface tension, direction, every time we enter it from the shoreline of the present moment. Like, writing a memoir is not just sharing the facts of what happened. It, it's like you, every time you enter the water, you change the shape of that water. It's, it's highly creational and creative. And I think, so I love the work of feminist quantum physicist Karen Barad, who came up with this idea of space-time mattering, which is that space and time and everything are connected. So if any, anything that happens in the present changes the past mm-hmm. and the future. <laughs> and so the future and the past are constantly reorganizing. And so for me, there's also this profoundly liberatory opportunity with the writing of this memoir to not go back and fossilize the violence in my life, but to change it mm-hmm. um, and to maybe really change it. <laughs> to garden in it and to hold it. And maybe that can flow into my future self. But the past is not as foreclosed as we think it is. It, it's still plastic. It's still changeable. And so Mem was a way, I think, of safely from the present entering, you know, going back into a flashback of a memory is a very unsafe way of doing that. But Mem is this beautiful way of dipping your toe into the water saying, what, what would I like to look at? How would I like to change it? How would I like to press myself against it? Do you know Joanna Newsom's song, Time as a Symptom? No, I don't actually. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, this, this is kind of like a timeline jumping story. Um, so that album, Divers, came out in October of 2015. Yeah. And I was obsessed. And um, I remember laying in my best friend Jen's bed, listening to that song over and over again. And and crying, thinking about like my grandmother who had recently died and how like someday my mom was going to die. And then my mom died the next month. And that song, that song just seriously got me through the initial month of like absolute hell of just picturing the moment of impact that killed her over and over and like waking up every day to the nightmare that it really happened. There's this line in that song that's like, I know you can yield when it comes down to it, bow like the field when the wind comes through it and I just kept picturing that at that at the moment of impact that she yielded like her whole life she was peaceful (laughs) like go with the flow and I just I don't know that line really got me through like those months of obsessing over that moment but the beginning of the song has this line 
But stand brave, life liver, bleeding out your days in the river of time. Stand brave. Time moves both ways. Yeah, it does. I live on the Hudson River, which is a tidal estuary, which means it's tide shifts direction a couple of times a day. And it always, for me, is this like really helpful external symbol of that. You know, it's there's a guardian angel in my future sending back, you know, song lyrics, songs, mantras, animals, things that will help me when my heart does inevitably break. Like happened to you. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you for everything for yourself. I like, I just care about you so much. <laughs> like, I mean, I just like personally wanted to know more information about your illness and your future. Cause I'm like anticipating. I'm like, is that, that's another heartbreak for like everyone who loves Sophie and whose life has been so. I'm, gonna, I'm like a cockroach. <laughs> I, kind of, I, mean, I kind of think I'm indestructible. I mean, maybe that's not a very like good thing to say, but yeah, I believe in all sorts of amazing possibilities. Amber, I I just really can't tell you how much you did save my life. Like really. And especially like when I was leaving this terrible relationship, just like listening to your podcast was such a like touch in to sanity. Thank you. you. I'm deeply honored to have played any part in your well-being. (laughs) Well, my spores are at your service. (laughs) I would love to send you a copy of my upcoming novel. So if you send me your address, I'll send you the, you know, the pre-copy of it. Of course. Yes, please. Your Instagram, your newsletter, how can people find you? Hmm. I have a Substack. I give a lot of stuff away for free because I've been a starving artist and I always want to have an open dialogue with people who are changing me. I do have a paid version where I give you know updates about works in progress. And sometimes I do hangouts where people share ghost stories and synchronicity stories, which are really fun. Um, I've heard some wild stories recently. Um, I have an Instagram, Cosmogony, C-O-S-M-O-G-Y-N-Y, and a website that's really out of date. Yeah. Wait, let's talk about the etymology of Cosmogony. Yeah. Well, it means like the birth of the universe, but I got the spelling of it from the indigenous scholar Paula Gunn Allen who changed it to a Y to kind of center these, like, you know, these uterine feminine um, cosmological stories. So I love it. So same root word as gynecology. Yeah. So cosmos, I, for a long time, I, I, I said it as cosmos, cosmogyny, but it's cosmogyny. Yeah. Okay. I just want to correct one thing and add two things. Um, the correction is that my mother died driving home from work, not school, as I had laid in bed so, so many nights of my childhood um, envisioning. And, you know, I have a whole episode about her and, and her death. It's episode 82, What I'd Be Without You, My Mother's Life, Death, and Legacy of Love. And that title is from God Only Knows by the Beach Boys, who Owen and I just saw uh, a few nights ago, it's just Mike Love and a backing band, but it was amazing. And I definitely cried when that song came on. And I realized re-listening to this episode to put it out that I hadn't finished my story about the Joanna Newsom song, Time as a Symptom, and how I had laid in my friend Jen's bed listening to that song when it first came out in October 2015. And it just made me 
saw, I was just like sobbing. It was so much grief and even grief for things that hadn't happened yet. And that a month later I was house sitting for Jen and her family. And I was sitting in that same bed when I got my mother's husband's voicemail from the night before telling me that my mom had died. And so that, that is what really felt like a, you know, time loop moment was being in that exact same spot when I got that news. And then in the coming weeks, I laid in that same bed a lot and just cried listening to that song again, as I, as I explained to Sophie, described to Sophie, um, how that song really got me through. And, and then the lyrics, (laughs) I, I won't, I won't go on about how meaningful that song has, has been for me. And, um, even the morning dove, there's sounds of morning doves in that song that harken back to the most powerful dream I've ever had in my life. And it was really this sort of dark goddess of death who um, had been a morning dove in my dream, like almost a almost a human-sized morning dove, and then literally transformed like in one second into this beautiful goddess. And I also wanted to say that re-listening and to that, especially part of our conversation about timelines and past, future, present. And I I did put the link to the book, um, the couple of books actually that Sophie mentioned down in the show notes, of course. But it reminded me that, my goodness, almost six years ago now, October 26th, 2017, I wrote a blog post back when I used to write blog posts. That's funny. It's right before I started this podcast um, called Ancestral Voices, Women's Weariness and the Illusion of Linear Time. And like looking back on it now, this women's weariness, it's, you know, about women's chronic illness, chronic fatigue, the things that some of the things that Sophie and I talked about in this episode and in an upcoming episode too with Sarah Ramey, who is the author of the book that we talked about, the lady's handbook for her mysterious illness, which of course is also linked in the show notes below. So thank you for listening. Check out Sophie's Patreon offering at um, the Medicine Stories Patreon page and definitely find Sophie online and her incredible Instagram account and Substack. Okay, I just need to say one more thing to clarify. The spiritual teacher that I was speaking about, I think a, a better term, first of all, would be like ancestral teacher. She's very grounded in the earth, very rooted in the old ways of her people. There's nothing airy fairy about it. It's not just that she's a vegetarian. That's fucking fine. People can eat what they want to eat. It's that I was looking into doing a week long retreat on her property. And it said like, you may not even bring meat onto this land. And that really struck me because, you know, as Sophie said, um, there are some people with real medical needs to be getting the most nutrient-dense food into their bodies at all times. But also it speaks to, you know, a belief she has about about purity, the purity of her land, the land on which she, you know, deals with dead wild animals and has these beautiful elaborate burials for them and whatnot. So it just struck me, you know, as a blind spot or a sort of inconsistency in her logic that she, again, as I'm assuming, you know, thinks that she can be above death, above the cycles of life by not consuming animal products as every single one of her ancestors and all of ours did until very recent times to sustain themselves and all of life. So 
just shifted my perspective on her when I realized how differently we conceive of our place as humans in the greater cycle of life. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and always put any relevant links in the show notes, which you can find by just scrolling down from wherever you pushed play on this episode. You can find all past episodes and our handmade herbal medicine at mythicmedicine.love. We've got reishi, lion's mane, elderberry, St. John's wort, mugwort, yarrow, redwood. We've got body oils, sleep medicine, heart medicine, earth essences, and more. While you're there, be sure to check out our fun quiz, which healing herb is your spirit medicine? It's lighthearted, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with both the medicine that you're in need of and the medicine that you already carry and can bring to others. If you love the show, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash medicine stories. It is so worth your time. There are dozens and dozens of killer bonuses there, ebooks, bonus conversations, uh, guided meditations, giveaways, resource guides, links to online learning, coupon codes, behind the scenes stuff. And the best of it is available at the $5 a month level. And it literally makes the show possible. You can also subscribe or follow. Uh, depending on which podcast app you prefer. The music that opens the show is by Marie Sue from her beautiful song, Wild Eyes. That's M-A-R-I-E-E-S-I-O-U. Thank you, my beautiful friend Marie. And thank you for listening. I look forward to next time. 